Well, good evening and happy Memorial Day. I'm so glad to be here with you on Steadfast as we wrap up our series, Bad Attitudes. Maybe it's a good day to wrap it up because we often have not the greatest of attitudes on Memorial Day. We think about how we want to schedule our parties and if the food's to our liking and if the travel expenses are too expensive and all those sorts of things. And we lose sight of what the day was set aside for, that it was set aside to remember those who gave their lives for us to have the freedoms that we enjoy. And so we often have a bad attitude even on a holiday, ironically enough, or at least not the right attitude. Well, we're going to look at some people who had a very similar sort of attitude. They had an opportunity to recognize something and were instead too busy looking out for what they thought were their own interests tonight. And as we do, let's pray that God would help us to see those places where we are looking out for our own interests rather than the interests that he calls us to look out for. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your patience with us when we become self-centered and, and miss out on the things that you are calling us to be and to do. Lord, would you help us to recognize your grace, and as we recognize your grace, to also recognize how you call us to be used and to respond to that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're coming into the summer season, and, and summer often brings travel. Perhaps you already have travel plans for the summer. You're headed someplace. And, and if you ever get off the highway, almost any place where a major interstate replaced old U.S. roads that, that at one point had the same hustle and bustle of travelers, you'll find towns that once were grand and, and are sort of forgotten now. Maybe they, they had tons of tourist activities. Maybe they had an old manufacturing facility that's closed. And, and, and whatever the case may be, you can find this probably any place in the, the United States. Certainly you can find it here in Missouri and in, in Illinois. You go to those little towns and you find these abandoned buildings. You go to the main street and you find a bunch of stores that are closed up. They're lost to so-called progress. And sometimes that's progress as in the interstate moved a mile away from them. And so there's lots of, of travel stops and so on over by the highway, but not a lot going on in the city. Sometimes it's simply because manufacturing is no longer being done in this country for whatever was being built there and they've started to crumble. But a lot of times in those cities, even as anyone driving through from the outside would look and, and say, why are you even trying? Just, just you know, there's, there's just no hope that you're going to re reestablish the city. They'll have big banners up proclaiming how wonderful the city is and so on. And, and people are somehow trying to hold on to what they've been losing. It doesn't often work. Occasionally it does. For example, there, there's a city I was talking about with a friend the other day called Casey over in Illinois. It's not far off of Highway 70. And it was one of those towns going through that very process of of losing attention to to those travel stops that are placed right alongside the highway and people racing just at high speeds right by it and someone came up with the idea that they should build a lot of the world's largest things whether it's the world's largest toothpick or mailbox or there, there's a whole host of them there and and so in this town that was dying they figured out a way to create a reason for people to come and be tourists there in a city that otherwise would just be a little forgotten city somewhere in the middle of Illinois. And so they figured out a way to 
to draw people back in, and in that to hold on to their city. Well, in tonight's passage, we're turning to Acts chapter 19 and Paul's time in Ephesus. We find a city sort of in a similar period of transition. Ephesus had been a great city. It, it contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the temple to Artemis. And, and, and so it was a destination city. It was a city with great wealth and, and success because it was also a, a strategic trade route along the sea and and it had a great port and so there was tons of money flowing in and out tons of reason for people to show up there but ephesus was in decline it was now being taxed much more heavily by the roman empire and on top of that the the success of the city ended up actually working against it because they had chopped down so many trees and tried to till so much land and so on that that the the soil was actually running down the the hills and mountains into the river and starting to block off the very port that had made Ephesus a success. Ephesus was a city in crisis and they were trying to figure out how to hold on to what they had and they had one thing really going for them which is they still had that temple to the Greek goddess or at least some variation thereof. There's some debate on exactly how much this Artemis looked like the Artemis of Greek mythology. But the point being that it was recognized as this significant temple of an ancient goddess, and people would travel far and wide to come and see the splendor of this temple and then to worship this goddess. Well, that's what the city's holding on to. Its port is, is troubled, and and yet... It still is a destination, at least, for tourism. People come there. They spend their money there. They, they bring their friends there. And this is the context in which Paul shows up. Paul shows up preaching the gospel and, and calling people to turn away from these false gods like the one that people worshipped in Ephesus and to turn towards the living God who would offer the people eternal life. And he starts out like he often does in the book of Acts as he's traveling about. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches to the Jews there. Some of them respond. Some of them are angry. And, the, and then Paul is preaching to the general city, the Gentiles. And some of them are also responding. And that's where we drop in to Acts chapter 19, if you'd like to turn there, starting at verse 23. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are no gods. Demetrius sees a problem. He knows that the thing that is holding his city together and certainly his own job together, it, it isn't going to function if Paul succeeds. He says, wait a second here. Our fate depends on this tourism that comes through this town. And Paul is arguing against it. He's like a health inspector showing up to a resort community and saying the beach is toxic and no one should go there. That's basically what Paul's saying. He's, he's saying, don't travel to Ephesus and, and come see this temple. In fact, you Ephesians, you shouldn't be traveling to your own beach. You need to run from it because it's toxic. It's going to kill you. Instead, 
you should run to Jesus. And so Paul is offering them important safety instruction, just as a health inspector coming to that toxic beach would be doing. And yet, if you're the owner of a resort, you're not happy when it happens. They wanted their tourism to succeed. They wanted their tourism to thrive because that's how they could maintain the, the lifestyle they've been living, the, a, a town that, that maybe had more affluence and influence than it should have at this point in history. And Paul was directly attacking it. And people don't respond well when you attack their means of bringing in tourists when they're a tourist town, when they're a destination, especially a worldwide recognized destination like Ephesus was. Think about it. This temple that was going to be criticized by Paul, he wasn't directly in anything we have spending a lot of time on the temple itself and saying, how dare you have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but but it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was a place to worship a pagan goddess. So as Paul talked about that there was really only one God, and, and you needed to turn to that God, and that God would offer you eternal life, he wasn't exactly giving a, a, a raving Google review to the tourist destination. He was saying, stay away from there. They didn't like it. Sort of reminds me of something that happened over the weekend. You probably heard about this. Did you hear about the, the man who who put himself in a wheelchair dressed up as an old lady and wheeled himself up to the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. And at just the right moment as he approached the Mona Lisa, he jumped up, threw rose petals all over the place, and then, and this is the critical part, took a piece of cake for some reason and smeared it all over Mona Lisa, or at least the glass in front of Mona Lisa. Thankfully, there's glass in front of it. Well, of course, Louvre security immediately stopped the man, and, and he was taken off arguing that artists didn't spend enough time talking about the dangers happening to our earth and pollution and so on. But as, as ecologically minded as the French often are, they're not particularly fond of this guy because of why? Because he's attacking a, a piece of what they termed a cultural work. He was attempting to vandalize it, and that's a criminal charge in France. Because here it is, the Mona Lisa, the perhaps centerpiece of the Louvre and, and a place that people travel all over the world to see this one thing in this, this giant museum. Lots of other things to see there too, but, but can you imagine the Louvre without the Mona Lisa? And, and so they're not particularly happy, even if they agreed in some sense with this man and his message about ecology. They, they really didn't want him to be trying to smear cake on the Mona Lisa. I don't blame them. But, but think about why. Well, it's a threat to their culture and their tourism. And they value and prize having that civic pride of having the Mona Lisa there. And in some sense, that's the, the sense in which the people of Ephesus, that's how they felt about the Temple to Artemis. They didn't want anyone coming in and smearing cake all over it and saying, you're doing the wrong thing by being involved with this temple. Come and do something else. And Paul wasn't merely smearing cake. Paul was arguing that this is deadly to be involved in the worship of this goddess. So they weren't exactly pleased. Incidentally, here's a picture, if you did happen to miss it, of the Mona Lisa uh, with cake on. And so, you know, um, apparently he wanted to have his cake in Lisa too. But... The challenge was the Ephesians couldn't have their cake and Lisa too because if you were going to run from that temple, it was going to shut things down. 
And so they couldn't hold on to their lifestyle. That's what we see in verse 25. Demetrius says it. He, he's, he's blatantly honest in how he feels about what Paul's trying to do. He says it's going to attack where we receive our, our income as tradesmen. And so he, he's gathering up a mob of other craftsmen, and some of them were working with him, we're told. And why is he doing that? Is he's doing that because, because he doesn't want his lifestyle messed up. Notice what he says. Men, you know that this business from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. The health inspector's here, and he's going to tell people to flee the beach. We need to stop him. We need to stop him now, before he gets the hearts and minds of the people of Ephesus. Before he gets the hearts and minds of my customers, is what Demetrius is basically saying. At least he's open and honest with his motives. And that, that's something that we're not always good at. Although I was struck, I read another story over the weekend of a man named Tam Ventran, who has been fishing or rather crabbing off of the Farallon Islands right by San Francisco. And I, I didn't know anything about these islands, but apparently they are one of only 60 or so wilderness reserves designated that way by the U.S. government. People, except for scientists, aren't even allowed on the islands because there's all kinds of endangered species there, including a particular species of endangered crab. And it was discovered by other fishermen and crabbers that there were these crab traps that were being laid out in the area around these islands. And so they went and reported them to the authorities and were open and honest about why. They didn't want these crab traps to become an issue where they got blamed for them. They didn't want their reputation to be hurt by this rogue fisherman. And so they turned him in and he's now being charged with with crimes for violating the, the protective laws over these endangered species. They're open and honest, and they didn't say, we were so worried about the endangered species, we're worried about what people are going to think of us if they find out this guy was doing it. They're honest, and Demetrius is honest. He's saying, you know what I'm really worried about here? What I'm really worried about is I make a lot of money off of selling various souvenirs to people that come to see the Temple of Artemis, and Paul's a threat to that. He doesn't address whether what Paul's saying has any truth to it, whether there's anything good about what Paul's saying. He doesn't come up with a critique to show how Paul is false. What he does is say, Paul is attacking my pocketbook and I don't like it. So he admits the motive. But unlike those fishermen who, who were open and honest and said, we're just worried about what's going to happen to our reputation, Demetrius wants to go farther. And we see that in verse 27. He, he reveals his hand to begin with. He says, this is why I'm doing it. But then he, I think, realizes that that's not going to be enough to sell the cause to the people of Ephesus. Hey, I like making money. You guys buy stuff from me. You buy probably little statuettes and other trinkets commemorating the goddess. And, and I'm not going to have a good business if you go and convert to what Paul is saying. And so you should go and kick him out of the city. That's not going to work very well. So what he does then is he turns it into a moral or religious argument. And we see that in verse 27. He says, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may 
even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So he says, you know, yeah, it's going to hurt my trade, but here's what we need to say. What we really need to get across to the people is Paul's attacking Artemis, the great goddess, and, and if, if Paul succeeds, she's not going to be respected like she should be. Now, notice Paul never has to make such an argument because no one can depose God from his magnificence. But Demetrius is right, in a sense. If people quit worshipping Artemis, and by and large in the world people have, she's not going to be held up in high regard because what? Because Artemis isn't a god at all. He's not saying that, of course. He doesn't think that Artemis is a false god, but he's basically admitting it without even trying because he says if people listen to Paul, she won't be magnificent in the way she was any longer. We need to protect her. Paul's coming in and saying, you need to follow the God who's actually going to save you. Demetrius is saying, we can't, we can't let go of this goddess who's our patron in the city and, and whom we all know is so wonderful and great. And apparently this one man who's coming into the city is a threat to this great and wonderful goddess. Now, we can say, yeah, of course. Yeah, he, he's being foolish. He's following a false god. And, and, and we can say, isn't that, isn't that cute that he, he thought that Artemis is, is worth defending there and so on. But what we need to realize is that this isn't only something that's run into by people who worship false gods. We can do that too as God's people. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, notice this conversation between Isaiah and Ahaz. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now, if you're familiar with the history of the kings, you know Ahaz was a bad king. But Ahaz at least wanted to maintain a facade of being in communication with God's prophets and and at least had the cultural trimmings there to to be able to show to other people. And maybe in some sense he thought as he was leading people astray religiously even, that he was somehow appeasing all the gods, including the only one true God. But but in any case, notice how he responds. He responds with a very religious answer to the invitation by God himself to bring God to the test. He says something that generally is even true, that we shouldn't bring God to the test. But we know that Ahaz didn't care about God. He wasn't always worried about being faithful to God. What he sees here is he doesn't really even want to bother with this. He wants to sound pious. He doesn't actually want to bother with with any kind of faithfulness. And so he rattles off this this very good sounding thing. I'm not going to put my Lord to the test. Look at me. I'm, I'm so faithful. But that's, of course, not the case at all. Nonetheless, he at least sort of is picking up the cultural trimmings of being a follower of the Lord. That's not the only time we see this over and over again in Scripture. For example, in Jeremiah 37, as Jeremiah brings judgment to the land, announcing that God's wrath has come and, and that the faithlessness of the people over the, the centuries has accumulated to the point where they're going to be exiled, he's accused of treason. Take a look at Jeremiah 37. It says, Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, 
Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. And when he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Erejah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, It is a lie. I am not deserting to the Chaldeans, but Erejah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. So Jeremiah brings God's judgment to the land, and yet he receives not repentance or even people just rejecting him as false. He receives people saying that he's actually a traitor to, to God's people that he's going to betray them to the Babylonians, the very thing that they were doing by not obeying the Lord. They find a way to have moral outrage, at least if not framed quite as religiously as in the first example, they find a way to kind of make it a nationalistic moral outrage. You're betraying our nation, Jeremiah. How dare you? And Jeremiah is saying, but you're betraying our God. They don't hear that, though. They just beat him and imprison him. Last night, if you were with us online or in person for Sunday worship, we, we looked at the Pharisees and how the Pharisees did very similar things. And in their, their words and their deeds, they were often betraying God, and yet they were, were trying to present themselves in a very pleasing light instead and, and, and do it in a very religious way so people would look up to them instead. We often do these things where, where just like Demetrius is busy defending Artemis really because of his commercial interests, and yet he's framing it in, oh, we have to defend the worship of our goddess. We often do the same thing. We, we have something that we, we want to protect, with the, some, whether it's our own interests or, or, or things that we're attached to in culture, and we put some religious trimmings on it, and we go with full moral outrage that we don't usually show when people are actually doing things displeasing to God because we want to protect those things. And this is just what we do, unfortunately, as sinful human beings, but it's something we need to be aware of because it happens time and time again throughout history. For example, if you go back to the Middle Ages and you look at the the popes, many of them were appointed not because they were deeply pious people or, or even seemingly trying to be deeply pious people, but because they were people that were not going to receive the inheritance of their wealthy family and they needed another vehicle by which to have influence and power and culture. Perhaps no better example than Pope Leo X, who was a Medici, a Medici, and, and yet he used the papacy and not a normal secular seat of power in order to cultivate his interests. And that was sponsoring artists and sponsoring uh, scientists and doing all kinds of humanistic studies that, that aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but he was simply using the papacy to do that. In fact, we know from history that he drained the papal treasury and left it in $60 million or so of debt over the time that he was in power. And because of his wastefulness and the ways that then he sought to extract more money from people, he actually helped to spark the Protestant Reformation and became the pope who had to face off with Luther. But what does it really boil down to with him? What does it boil down to with the Pharisees or with the people that opposed Jeremiah or the people that opposed Isaiah or the people who opposed Paul? What does it boil down to? It boils down to a simple 
unfortunate truth about us as sinful human beings, which is that we're self-serving. We look out for our own interests, and sometimes it's cultural interests, like Pope Leo, where where he wanted to hold on to these these cultural artifacts and sponsor new art and be able to take in that art and, and live essentially like a king. Sometimes it's like Demetrius, where we're we're trying to hold on to our livelihood, and it seems like it can be a lot easier to justify if if we can point to some religious means for it. it happens today in the church. A lot of times, pastors will will hold on to power, not because they're actually trying to convey the gospel in, in a faithful way, but because they don't want to lose their job. I think if we really look at it and look at it in our own hearts, we can see those impulses there at times. And so as we look at this story, it challenges us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, we should ask ourselves, what is sacred to me? And secondly, we should ask, where do I protect my self-interests by baptizing them? And now, what do I mean by these two phrases? Well, what should be sacred to us, of course, is the Lord God and his word and his truth. Those are the things that should be sacred to us. But oftentimes, we hold on to other things. Sometimes they are quote-unquote religious things, and, and sometimes they are, are not. But we hold on to different things in our, our culture and society in our own lives, in our livelihoods, in our recreation, and, and we treat them as if they were sacred. And, and if anyone challenges them, we'll come out with full fury, even as we watch people do all kinds of horrible things that are displeasing to God that we don't care about because they're not actually touching on what's sacred to us. How do we find those things? Well, the thing that we should do is we ask that question to say, what things do I respond forcefully to where I feel like people are are, are attacking me and and my faith. And then we should ask, are those things that I actually find in God's word? Are they things that, that God says I should be really deeply worried about? Or are they simply things that mean something to me? And then oftentimes we're going to find those as we dig through that, we're going to find those places where we're really looking at self-interest that we've, we've baptized, so to speak. Sort of like Demetrius here. I, I have no idea if Demetrius spent any time at all worshiping Artemis, but clearly the reason that he's so worried about the great goddess Artemis is because he likes making silver statues and making a lot of money off of it. And and so we need to ask, are there places where, whether it's getting uh, getting to experience culture, whether it's getting to experience influence and power, whether it's getting to to make money and we want to protect those things, what things are there for me that I will baptize with religious splendor so that I can defend them with the moral outrage that I should reserve only for God. You see, here's the challenge. We often are busy, just like Demetrius, defending our own turf and our own interests and then trying to cover it up with moral outrage. But that isn't really what we're called to be and to do as Christians. You see, our hearts and the hearts of our culture don't change when we protect our turf, but when we protect God's turf. And our transformation, the transformation of our society doesn't happen when we try to couch our own moral preferences into God's calling, but rather when we allow God's calling to set the standard for morality. And, and oftentimes we blur those things so much that just like I, I would be very unsurprised to find that Demetrius really believed that the great goddess Artemis needed to be defended. Oftentimes we have those places too and become very blind to the ways that we're actually using those things to miss out on what God is doing. 
what's clear is we need to actually turn to the Lord. We need to turn to his word and allow his word to speak and to challenge us and to make us uncomfortable. Demetrius, in his bad attitude, had the Apostle Paul there preaching the gospel that would have saved him for all eternity, and he turned it away so he could sell some more silver statues. The people of Ephesus, to some extent at least, turned it away too. Why? Because they wanted to be able to have their tourist trap. They wanted to have people around them still and respect their culture. We need to ask where those places fall and we need to run so that we instead can run into God's mercy and his love. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's like cleaning up anything, when, especially something really muddy and dirty. We have to start pulling out the rocks and bits of gravel and so on that have, have accumulated over what God's called us to do and figure out by allowing his word and his spirit to speak to us where we've done this. But when we do and we have a good attitude and we say, I, I want to have the heart that you have, Lord. I want to experience what you want me to experience, to defend what you care about. Not only do we do what's pleasing to God, but we get to thrive because we're actually experiencing the life that God intends for us. That's something that apparently seems that Demetrius missed out on. And, and all those that put their lot with that temple of Artemis. Eventually that temple would be destroyed. It's mostly just a empty plot now with a few bits of artifacts that the archaeologists have found, but it certainly wasn't something to defend because the truth was Artemis wasn't there. She doesn't exist. And likewise, oftentimes those those sacred objects that we turn into something worth defending are just as passing as that temple when we grasp on instead to what is true and lasting. Would you pray with me, please? Father, would you be with us tonight and help us to focus on you and on your truth? So often we we cling to things that are passing that seem to offer temporary comfort or security. And we miss out on what's there as we turn to you and hold on to you. Lord, if we're resisting believing the gospel at all like Demetrius was, may tonight be the day that or the night that we we set aside those things that we think are our self-interest and we realize that it, it is best not only in in pleasing you, but also in experiencing the life you've made us to live, to turn to you, that, that we can experience a fullness beyond imagination, living in your presence. And for those of us that trust in you, Lord, would you help us to see where we've started to accumulate mud and silt over, over that work that, that we find in scripture and we add things to it and we, we instead turn our hearts towards the things of the world. Would you wipe that away and let us experience your grace afresh and your calling for our lives afresh? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. And if it was, please do give this video a like or a share or both. You can help us out by by sharing the word about Steadfast on social media. There's someone probably wondering about why it is that, that Christians often cling to the wrong things. And maybe you can encourage them tonight as they see, well, this is an age-old problem. It's one that we're aware of, and it's one that as a church we're called to repent of. Well, we're also going to be starting a brand new series next week, and I hope you'll invite a friend to that as well. We're returning to Proverbially Speaking. It's our summer series each year where we spend some time in the Proverbs, taking in the wisdom of God there. 
And I can't wait to share a few more weeks of Proverbially Speaking with you. So I hope that you'll join us at 7 p.m. next Monday night for that. In the meantime, on Sunday, we'll be once again having in-person worship. If you haven't yet experienced Little Hills in person, I hope that you will come on Sunday. It'll be a joyful day as we continue our series through the Beatitudes and sing praises to God. It, It was so fantastic last night. Last night we had Joyce, who usually you'll you'll recognize online. She was there in person from Mexico, sharing God's word. She she read our call to worship, as you can see in that picture. And then afterwards we had our very first church barbecue, and it was just such a joyful and delightful time. It, it really was special, and I know next week will be special too with you there. So I hope you'll join us. And if, of course, if you can't join us online, or excuse me, in person, you can join us online. And so do please check us out online on Sunday nights if you haven't already. In addition, we have our men's Bible study on Thursday nights. It'd be great to see you there if you're a man looking for a Bible study. We're going through the book of Romans. We're taking our time, soaking it in, and it'd be great to have you in the fellowship there that is online so you can attend from anywhere every Thursday night. If there are any prayers or questions that you have, you can reach out to me at any time at the email address on screen or you can leave a comment in the comments below. I love hearing from you and I love praying for you. Hope you have a wonderful and joyful rest of your holiday evening. Thank you for sharing part of it with me. And I can't wait to share some of these other upcoming events with you in the days ahead. Have a blessed week.